Good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And we are a little over halfway through our preaching series that we're calling Strong Old Testament Women. We'll be wrapping up the book of Esther this morning and then taking a break uh, to do some Easter preparation. Then after Easter, we'll be picking up in the book of Ruth. So the theme of Esther has been resist this cultural empire that seeks to assimilate us. And the, the theme of Ruth is one of repentance. We thought what a great way to follow resistance is to repent. So we're looking forward to seeing what the Lord will show us through the book of Ruth after Easter. But this morning we're in Esther chapter 9. It's printed for you on page 10 in the bulletin. And uh, as you're turning there, either in your own smartphones or in your own Bibles, let me open us up with prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, it is our joy to come before you this morning, to come and receive from your Word, to actually have your Word, Father, where you tell us who you are and who we are and who Jesus is, Lord, and how the three of us can come together. Lord, we pray that you would show us once again the beauty of your gospel as we delve into this Old Testament book, Father. Open it up by your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the really good stories are often written backwards. That is, instead of kind of like meandering through as the story goes, hoping to find an ending, maybe seeing what's going to happen, the author knows the outcome from the very, very beginning. Scottish Presbyterian author J.K. Rowling said that she did this with her Harry Potter series, even though it took place over thousands of pages, and she wrote it over the course of a decade. After it was all done, she said she actually had the ending already written and done before she even started the first book. She knew where it was going to go from the very beginning. And we see the same thing in the book of Esther. From the very beginning of the book of Esther, the human author has known how it would end. It was written after these historical events. It was written to explain one of the major festivals in the Jewish calendar commemorating what happened in the book of Esther. So today as we look at Esther chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 20. We're actually not going to read verses 1 through 19. Verses 1 through 19 are just a very highly detailed report of what we already know happened. The Jews successfully defended themselves against thousands of people who wanted to kill them. There are some ethical and moral questions about the events of verses 1 through 19. I'm not avoiding those. Um, I addressed those last week, actually. And if you're interested in those questions, if you have those questions, you can find that on our YouTube channel or on our podcast as well. But this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the deeper significance um, and ongoing implications of their victory over their haters. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this, that God's promises really can turn your mourning into dancing. So we'll see this as we look at the first couple of verses here, verses 20 through 25. We see days of grace. This is God's word. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. 
For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadapha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had, casted, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. <clears throat> so this is God's word. So what happens after the big victory is you get the party. There's a huge ticker tape parade in Susa. The, the reporter from Persian Time magazine quickly takes that stone etching. It's famous. You've seen it. You know, the Jewish sailor grabs the Jewish nurse and kisses her right there in Xerxes Square. They're just having this big old party. God's people have won this huge important battle, but more importantly, God has fulfilled his covenant promises to protect and preserve his people, and so they celebrate. Can I just tell you right now, Marty is already getting the preparations in place for what he is going to call, and I've like, yes, let's call it that, Midlothian's biggest party. Because whenever the COVID restrictions are lifted and the new normal becomes the new reality, we are going to celebrate that we made it. It's over. We're gonna, you're, you've never seen such a party at Sycamore, and, that, and that's nothing compared to what was going on here in Susa at this time. Mordecai decides, you know what, we need to relish these days of grace and when the worst thing was going to happen, but then it didn't. So let's turn it into an annual feast. See, even when it seems that God is absent, even when it seems that darkness is winning, Esther reminds us to trust that God is with his people, that he will do what he promised to do and deliver his people. And so since what is recognized and remembered becomes the new normal, Mordecai says, you know what, let's do this every year. Let's do what exactly? He says, let's remember, and look with me at verse 22. What do they want to remember? Let's remember the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. I love just the joyful celebration in that. And that little phrase in there, got relief, it actually translates better as received rest. It's a huge Godward promise. Earlier in the Old Testament, receiving rest was actually the requirement that God put in place before they could build a temple to worship him and be in relationship with him. God's promised a wandering people, once I give you this land, once I give you rest, then you will build a temple for me so we can worship together. That's grace. Unlike all the nations around them then and unlike all the tantalizing things in our life today, all those things that demand payment up front, the God of Scripture says, I will help you, I will rescue you, I will heal you, and then you worship me. That's grace. It's not worship me, please me, become shiny, be my new cute thing and stay cute, and then I will give you all the good stuff. No, God pays it first. Let me rescue you. 
This is God's character. We see this even in supposedly the mark of his being a taskmaster, the Ten Commandments. How does the Ten Commandments start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I've rescued you. Now here's what pleases me. It's not, okay, do these ten things and then I might rescue you. No, God comes in grace and he saves his people. What we see in Susa and Esther is vintage God. It's right with his character. In the midst of a predatory culture, In the midst of a capricious government, God brings his people rest. Don't you want that? Don't you want rest? Not just more sleep, but rest. Okay, imagine how this feels, okay? So, all the bills are paid, and there's still money in the bank, and there's like plenty of month left. Like, wow, I I can do this. And all of a sudden, you stop and you think, wait, no one's sick. I got this problem handled. I, I can't think of anything pressing to worry about right now. What's this feeling of the bills paid and nothing stressing in my life? I just feel happy and relaxed. That's biblical rest. That's what God offers. Don't you want that? When you love that, can I get some of that, please? That's what God offers by grace, just rest. That's what he did for his people in Persia, turning their sorrow into gladness, turning their mourning into a holiday. And the word holiday there is actually a, more of an interpretation that literally translates just good day, tov yom, good day. Don't you love that? That actually makes more feeling to me than holiday. It's like, oh, today's a good day. That's rest that God brings to his people. See, it doesn't matter if it's the edict of Haman. doesn't matter if it's COVID-19. doesn't matter if it's the Pending Equality Act. God has promised to protect his people. We can rest in his promises. So God's people in Esther's time are having a party. They're full of gladness. And I love how it, it puts in there, they send each other gifts, and they make sure that even their poor have something to celebrate. I love that picture of community there, that God's grace makes them into a new kind of people, a new kind of community, a new way of relating to each other. And they basically say, you know what, our joy is not complete unless all of us can celebrate. So we give gifts to the poor so they have something to celebrate too. They're generous because of the joy of grace. See, this part of Esther shouts at us that God's love does not fail his people. His promises are never broken. That God's promises really can turn your mourning into dancing. You believe that? I mean, as people are so afraid of the future in such a palpable way, I've noticed in my conversations with you, as culture becomes more and more, it seems, against truth, do you believe that God does not fail his people? Or like Esther's time, do do we need some reminders of that? Well, we have those reminders if you'll look with me now at this next section of verses, verses 26 through 32 here in chapter 9 of Esther. Call these days of worship. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. 
that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Okay, so that word Purim keeps happening. So the little dice back in chapter 3, I think, that Haman used to decide which day to kill all the Jews in Persia on were called Pur. And so in Hebrew, instead of adding an S to make things plural, you put an I-M on there. So Purim means dice, basically. And I'm, I may mess up and say Purina at some point because my mind keeps going there, so you're allowed to laugh if I do. Because it sounds like, right, Purina, Purim. Anyway, so they began to call this annual celebration by that name, and it becomes a major distinctive place in the Jewish calendar. In fact, it actually just happened a couple weeks ago. I think by my reckoning, 10 days ago, the Feast of Purim started. And they had these cool little pastries that literally, tra- it's, a, it's called a, a Hammenschauen, I think, and it literally translates to a Haman pocket. And it's, it's dough, I know, right in that great, a Haman pocket. And they put, it's dough, and then they put either jelly or some nice, nice treats in there. And they cook them, and they, they pass them around. I was going to try to order a bunch of them in bulk and pass them around during the service, but the COVID-19 restrictions were like, um, no, you can't do that because that sounds fun. We can't have fun in COVID, so couldn't do it. But anyway, maybe next year, maybe next year. So God has come, and God turns their good day into a holiday annually. Every year they celebrate this wonderful time. They pass out the Esther is the reason for the season t-shirts. They give each other gifts because they cannot, they cannot imagine that God delivered them from this. It's time to gather together to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness. They gather to celebrate and remember. You know what that's called? Worship. God has turned death to life. The curse of the enemy has been turned around into blessing. Such a rescue drives them to worship the rescuer. The deliverance of the Jews here is an appetizer, awaiting the hunger for the main course of redemption that God has promised to them in the coming Messiah. But the recurring forces of evil, first expressed in the serpent in the temptation, then Cain killing his brother Abel, Haman's ancestors attacking the Hebrews after the exodus, Haman himself trying to kill the Jews, the authorities killing Jesus, all of those were defeated and reversed by God just as he promised. See, and those of us who are on this side of the cross, who are on this side of the work of Jesus, who recognize the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have even more to look forward to and to celebrate, don't we? Because what they looked forward to and hoped in, we know happened. Jesus took on the edict of death and beat it. He rescued us from sin and death and made us into family. Oh, my dear Presbyterians, God wants us to remember that and celebrate that. 
You know, I love the seasons of Christmas and the build-up to Christmas, and I love Easter and the build-up to Easter and, and, and taking Lent to really kind of give up and recognize that what Jesus gave up for us. I love these, but you do realize that technically there are 52 major holidays on the Christian calendar. You know this, right? Because every Lord's Day we gather to celebrate a good day. We gather to celebrate that Jesus is the reason for the season, that he is our rescuer, and that we celebrate and remember that there was an edict of death against us, and we come to celebrate that it's gone. Every Sunday we do that, every Lord's Day. And even more, there are special Sundays like today, when in addition to gathering and celebrating, we also get to actively participate in a better feast than even Purim. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper with Jesus. Everything that Purim stands for here at Esther 9 and 10 is found deeper in communion. We remember that Jesus' body was crushed for our sins so our body wouldn't have to be. We remember that Jesus' blood was shed for our sins so our blood wouldn't have to be, so that we don't have to suffer, Jesus did. So we come celebrating in the bread and the juice the truth that Jesus brought us mercy, that Jesus rescued us, and we get to participate in this feast. The joy and exaltation here in Esther 9 is a great guide for participating in the Lord's Supper during the week, or during, on a weekly Sunday. So let's bring all this together. There's palpable joy, there's palpable celebration in our worship on Sunday. At least there should be. Because we, like these Jews, remember that the death and punishment that's out there, that's coming, that we can't stop, we've been spared by grace because of the work of another. Does such joy and celebration characterize us? Or have we been assimilated ourselves by a culture that calls such religious emotions fanatical, dangerous, Primarily because such celebratory energy, of course, is to be saved for political causes and entertainment fandom and, of course, sports, right? The things empire says are important. See, we resist empire when we bring our whole heart to worship. We resist empire by remembering that the day is coming when our Lord will return and he will put the empires of the world to an end. His resurrection guarantees it. The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that one day, someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And to a Roman culture reading that book in Greek, they would have heard that word Lord in completely political terms. They would have not have spiritualized it like you just did. It would be a political title. They would read it as Jesus is the king of this earth. It's a political claim that Jesus rules over all. You want, to be, you want to resist? You want to stick it to the man? Love Jesus and worship him because every Sunday is a foretaste of his coming victory over all the empires of people. But so often we're so used to celebrating other things that we forget don't we? Or, or maybe we've, we've spent all our emotional energy here. We don't really have it to come and bring on a Sunday morning. Recently, someone from this congregation introduced me to the restaurant um, Bonchon. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And I have, for the first time in my life, Korean fried chicken. Okay, and let me just tell you, this southerner who like thought I'd had fried chicken, 
whoa, okay? If you haven't had Korean fried chicken, we need to do lunch because I've been taking people there all the time. Like, you got to have this stuff. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's awesome. And when I tell you food is awesome, I know under this robe you probably think I'm like jacked and everything. I'm not. I'm a pudgy middle-aged man. So when I say food, trust me, okay? I know food. This chicken is awesome. And I just use the word awesome for food. What do I have left to describe the unimaginable, glorious trinity coming to a sinner like me and rescuing me by taking the punishment on themselves? I've used awesome for chicken. What do I do? See, we do that, don't we? We've, we've spoiled our appetite so often for celebrating the significant because we've spent all of our celebratory energy on the trivial, which is what empire wants us to do. Have we rejoiced so much in what empire says is worthy? We have nothing left to really worship God without it feeling weird. See, that question is kind of how the book ends. Let's look together at these last three verses here in chapter 10 under days of faith. So King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king had advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So chapter 9 ends with a reminder of how great the Jews are, especially the power and influence of Esther and Mordecai. And we get to chapter 10, and we're told that Xerxes levies a tax on everyone. That seems like a weird transition. But here's what's going on. Whoever has the power to tax, they're the ones in charge. Empire keeps doing what empire does, even in the midst of all this Jewish celebration, all this rescue and deliverance. Even though there has been salvation, even though there's been vindication, God's people are still subjects. And this should cause them to look to the future, a messianic longing for something greater than Esther and Mordecai to bring about a more profound salvation and vindication. This quick tax mention reminds the readers that there's still one adversary left, and it's Xerxes himself. Empire remains, and there's an ever-present danger that God's people will doubt that God is there. See, Esther is written in such a way, if you've noticed as we've gone through this book, God is never mentioned. we We never see them praying. There's plenty of places where it's assumed they would be praying. But Esther is written in such a way that we have to look for God in the average, everyday, daily events of the story. Just like we have to look for him in our life today. See, as the story ends, you can almost hear the Hamilton cast singing, the world turned upside down, because of all these reversals that have happened. And if it's not God doing these reversals, what in the world's happening here? They were in turmoil, and now they have peace with the king. And as we come to the end of this book, let's look where we stand. As the culture of America, let's just say looms, not to be too ridiculous about it, as it it looms, as it pushes more and more to assimilation, we should not look to empire for peace, but to the prince of peace. 
Jesus became man for us, not as a conqueror, not as a political leader, but as a lowly carpenter. And when it seemed that Satan and sin and evil and death had won at the cross, God reversed it all. He turned the world upside down with the resurrection, breaking sin, breaking Satan, and destroying death forever, bringing life to God's people. And instead of fearing the future, we should remember the reversals in the book of Esther. Let this give you a reminder what God can do through and in politics and in culture in a moment. The Jews had victory over their enemies. And let's remember the great reversal of the gospel itself. You see, we as God's people, we have peace with God, a peace that surpasses any peace the world has to offer. Because it rests not on a queen's ability with a fickle king, not on a prime minister's ability with a fickle king, but our peace rests on Jesus, the King of kings, who loved us and gave himself for us. Gives us peace with God, his Father. And in a way, I just love how it's almost like Jesus grabs our hand and says, hey, guess what? My dad can be your dad too. Let's go meet him that we become adopted as God's very children and have peace, and he gives us rest. And you can go, oh, okay, this is nice. (laughs) Do you know God as Father through Jesus Christ like that? Do you want to? Does it sound too good to be true? That's okay. Even wanting it to be true is a great step that God can use to bring you into peace with himself. You simply confess Jesus as the resurrected Lord. You repent of your sin and you will be saved. And don't wait. Do it now. And those of you who have done that and you know that Jesus is yours and you are his, celebrate his grace. Remember his kindness and come to worship with your whole heart because that's how you stick it to the man today. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've shown us that you're a God of reversals. That you're a God who undoes the crazy, terrible things and makes them into good things. You make our bad days into good days. You turn our anxiety into rest. Lord, I pray specifically, I know there's a handful of people who, who struggle with anxiety in our congregation. Lord, I pray that you even now would speak the peace that you promise here to your people. That is, in in verse 22, as the Jews got relief from their enemies, that you would give them relief in their heart from the constant pressure and anxiety. And Lord, we pray that you would build your kingdom even now this morning, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. And Lord, we ask that you would take us deeper and deeper into your celebratory heart that we might be those who resist by celebrating and worshiping you. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' great name. Amen.